Good morning, everyone. Thanks, Roger, for reading the passage for us. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Thank you, Father, for this story that reveals to us something of the glory of Jesus. And I pray that you would enable me to open it up through the power of your spirit and that you would speak to our hearts and challenge and comfort us where needed. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Roger said, we're, we're carrying on our series in John's Gospel. And today we're looking at this story, which John describes at the end of the story we've just had read as Jesus's second sign that he performed having come from Judea to Galilee. We know signs are important, even just thinking of things like road signs. We need them. Uh, last year as a birthday treat, Natasha allowed me to head off to France on a motorbike trip with a friend. And it was all going very well. We, he, he came up from southern Spain and we met, went around the sort of northwest corner of France. And it was all going, well, I can't remember now, northwest, northeast, never mind. We were driving around and in a small country lane somewhere, I had my phone stashed in a little sat-nav holder attached to my motorcycle handlebar. And without me realizing it, the whole thing came flying off and ended up in a ditch somewhere. And of course, by the time I could work out that it happened, there was no chance of finding it again. And I, the reason I wasn't really paying attention was because my friend had a state-of-the-art sat-nav on his motorcycle, specially designed for motorbikes. And so I was just following him all the time, not really worrying about where I was going. Well, it was fine as long as I was with him. But of course, when he headed south to Spain and I headed north to catch the ferry, then I was a little bit more worried because I had no sat-nav and I certainly didn't want to get lost coming home. And so you can believe I was very attentive to all the road signs I could see to make sure I was getting on the right road to get to the ferry. And even nowadays with sat-navs and Google Maps, we still do need to pay attention to signs. I'm sure we've all had that experience of following the nice lady in Google Maps who never gets mad at you, unlike probably your, your spouse sitting next to you or friend. But you can end up still at a dead end or find yourself turning down a, a one-way street going the wrong way. So signs are very important, but they're not, they're, they don't, they're not important unless they point to the destination we want to get to. They're meant to help us get there, keep us on track. They're not the destination itself. And in John's gospel, signs are meant to point us to Jesus. And I think this one point comes through very clearly today that signs are meant to point us to Jesus not distract us from Jesus. Signs lead us to the Savior. They are not the Savior. Signs should have that pointing function. So let's see how that works in today's passage that we've just had read to us. Well, a quick recap just to put us in uh, the right place as we've been going through John's gospel. Jesus had been in Jerusalem. He'd set off back to Galilee and passed through Samaria. And that's the rest of the earlier part of chapter four where he has this encounter with this woman at the well in Samaria. And as we left it last week, we see this response of faith by virtually the whole village of these Samaritan people. And they end by saying, verse 42, we know that this man really is the savior of the world. That's a fantastic statement. But after spending a couple of days with them, as we begin this story today, Jesus decides to return to Galilee, where he'd been heading originally, and he tells us this strange thing that we read in verse 44. A prophet has no honor 
in his own country. And of course, that saying comes out in the other Gospels, often applied to Nazareth as Jesus's hometown. But here Jesus is talking more generally about his own people, the Jews. He knew the kind of reception he was getting from them. And now as he goes home to Galilee, what would happen there? But then it's slightly surprising because in verse 45, it actually says that the Galileans welcomed him. They were happy to see him. So what's going on here? Well, as you read on in the verse, it becomes apparent that many of those Galileans had seen what Jesus had done in Jerusalem. If you jump back to John chapter 2, and we read at the end of, uh, in verse 23 there, it says, Now while Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But here's a key interpretation. It goes on to say in verse 24, Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. The signs he was doing were certainly impressing people, impressing them enough to believe that Jesus was somebody special, but not enough to show them who Jesus truly was or to understand his purposes for coming. And so he couldn't entrust himself to them. He knew what was in their hearts. He knew the kind of faith that the signs were generating was very shallow. And in fact, in John chapter 6, many of his followers will leave him as he starts to teach difficult truths. But coming back to our passage, some of these Galileans had been there. And so they're now excited to welcome Jesus into Galilee because they want to see him do the same thing. Do here what you did there. Heal people. Cast out demons. Put on a bit of a show. They are demanding signs rather than seeking Jesus. And to be honest, Jesus is not interested in putting on a show. In fact, as we read the story, we see that he's quite exasperated and disappointed with them. You know, his, these Samaritans, who are not even his own people, have somehow understood and grasped and believed that Jesus was the savior of the whole world. His own people can only see him as some kind of miracle worker, not a savior. He's a local boy, not Lord of the universe. They have the wrong kind of faith. And so as the story goes on, when this official comes with his need, he challenges their hearts and their faith, jumping, faith, jumping ahead to verse 48. He says, "You, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. It's quite a challenge to them. They're not looking for Jesus. They're looking for a sign. They don't have faith in Jesus, in who he is, but only in these miraculous things that he can do. Now, this is not to say that signs are wrong, and that will become apparent, I hope, as we go through the story. They are important. They do play a purpose. And as, as we carry on this story, verse 46, we notice that John wants to draw attention to this sign. He says this, Once more, he visited Cana and Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. He's a, this is a deliberate reminder of that first sign, that turning of the water into wine, the best wine, we're told by the people who organized the wedding. It was a fantastic miracle, and there's much we could say about the significance of that. But what's important for us today is that at the end of that miracle in John chapter 2, verse 11, John tells us that through this sign, Jesus revealed his glory. And what he's telling us and he, as he goes through different signs is that signs reveal something of Jesus' glory. And particularly in the first 12 chapters of the book of the gospel, I think Mark explained this to us way back in our introduction, that that's called the book of signs 
because John lays out several signs as we go through those first 12 chapters, six or seven, depending how many you count, which ones you count. And I won't go through them. We'll, we'll be meeting them on the way. But the point is that all these are to show us something of Jesus' glory. And we get that famous summary verse in chapter 20 that probably everyone's going to mention in their preaching. Uh, verse 30, that Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Signs are meant to lead to genuine faith in him. And the problem with the Galileans is that they've got hooked up on the signs themselves. That's what they wanted, not Jesus himself. And that's what provoked his anger, his exasperation, his disappointment. As I said at the beginning, signs are meant to point us to Jesus, not distract us from Jesus. As we go through this story, we see we meet this royal official, verses 46 onwards uh, to, to about 50, where it talks about this official, somebody who was probably serving in the court of Herod Antipas, who ruled in Galilee at that time. This is the Herod who put John in prison, John the Baptist, and eventually Jesus appeared in front of him at his judgment. But he was the ruler of Galilee. And this official probably worked for him. And he lived in Capernaum, we're told, which is about 15 miles away, down by the lake. Cana is up in the hills. And so it would have been a fair old trek for him to get up there. Obviously, much more than 15 miles following the pathways. But his son was ill. And we read that he was about to die. And so he comes and begs Jesus to heal his son. This royal official's journey of faith begins with desperation. And as a father with sons, I can only imagine how he was feeling, this desperate sense that the, what this son he loves was about to die. But that desperation took him to Jesus, took him to beg Jesus for his son's life. And I think that's the kind of faith that Jesus responds to, not the one that demands a show and signs, but the ones that comes to him with a desperate need. And that's why when Jesus makes that rather cutting remark we read earlier about the crowd's appetite for signs and wonders in verse 48, he's actually speaking directly to the father, but it doesn't bother him. He just cuts through any kind of theological debate about signs and in his desperation just says more strongly, verse 49, Lord, come down before my son dies. He's not interested in Jesus putting on a spectacle. He just needs Jesus. He's not thinking about some dramatic sign. He's thinking about his dying son. But instead of going with him, Jesus tests his faith even further. In verse 50, he speaks to him four powerful words. Go, your son lives. This is the crux of the story, the point at which Jesus intervenes, and actually the point at which this second sign happens, even though we don't realize that until the end. As he speaks those words, go. He's telling the father, I don't need to come. Do you trust my power? I'm not sure how that official felt. He, you know, he put his hope in bringing Jesus back to his house and Jesus doing his thing, laying his hands on him, perhaps praying specially. But Jesus just says to him, go. And he says, your son lives. And as Jesus speaks those words, they become reality. His words work healing. And amazingly, we read in verse 50, the second half, that the man believes what Jesus says and takes him at his word and leaves. And although it took him till the next day to get there, 
we see that his journey has gone from one of desperation to one of hope through an encounter with Jesus. And that has consequences for his whole family. As he returns home, the servants meet him and they tell him, using pretty much the very same phrase that Jesus spoke to this man, they say to him, your child lives, verse 51. But that's not enough for this man. He wants to find out well, when does that happen? And so he asks the servants. And they say to him, well, that happened at about the seventh hour, should have been about one o'clock in the afternoon yesterday. And the man realizes, verse 52 and 53, that that was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him those words, your son lives. And so he and his whole household believe, wife, children, servants, the whole lot of them put their faith in Jesus. So what does this sign show us? What does it tell us? What does it reveal to us about Jesus? This sign that John calls the second sign in verse 54. Well, the first thing I think it very powerfully reveals to us is that life is in the son, not this man's son, but the son. Jesus can say, your son lives because life is in the son. In Jesus, there is life. And that's a theme that runs right through John's gospel from start to finish. John 1, 4, in him was life. John 5, 26, for as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. I could go on, John 10, 10, I've come that you may have life in all its fullness. John eleven twenty five. 25, those amazing words of Jesus to Martha when Lazarus had died. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life, John tells us in John 14, 6. And those verses I read earlier, as we believe in him, we have life in him. John loves this theme so much, he even uses it in his letters. 1 John 5, 12. He who has the Son has life. Jesus, as the Son of God, has life in himself. Who else can give life but God? This sign reveals so powerfully that Jesus is God's son because he's able to give life. We really see something of his glory as the life-giving son. We also see his, the power that is in his word. Because there is power in his word, Jesus can say, your son lives, and it's true. It becomes a reality. All he has to do is speak the word and the boy is healed. No drama, no fuss of a crowd following, no laying on of hands. He can just speak and the boy is healed 15 miles away. That is amazing power. That is the power of Jesus's word. And perhaps it's a little reminder that John is giving us that Jesus is the divine word, the logos, which we saw in very back, way back in the beginning of John's gospel. And interesting here in verse 50, it tells us that the man believed the word, the logos, which Jesus said to him. Jesus, the divine word, the divine logos, speaks a word, a logos, and a boy who is about to die is healed. He brings reality into being by the power of his word. And that should be no surprise to us. Think of verse like, verses like Hebrews 1.3. The Son, who is the radiance of God's glory, sustains all things by his powerful word. The Son already sustains the universe by his word. It's nothing for him to speak life here. This sign truly reveals something of Jesus' glory as we see the power in his word. 
we also see in this sign grace in his response. You know, in this situation where Jesus is exasperated, he's disappointed with his own people, surrounded by those who are seeking signs rather than the Savior, there is grace in his response to this man who comes to him in genuine need. He gives a suffering parent hope in the midst of the clamor and the attention. And we see that that hope is not just for a physical healing, but it goes beyond that. God's grace overflows abundantly. From the physical healing of the son, it overflows to the salvation of the whole household as they believe in Jesus. For this family, this sign pointed to the Savior. It was much more than just a healing for their son. So how can we perhaps apply this to our own lives today? Well, I'm sure you've been thinking of things as we've been going through, but I can see a few things that I think are particularly challenging to me at least. And the first of these is to not be like the crowd. This crowd is seeking signs and not Jesus. For them, Jesus was a means to an end. They loved him. They thought he was great as long as he did amazing stuff, as long as he healed everybody, as long as he put on a show. And I think perhaps not that drastically, but very subtly, we can be like that. Jesus, as long as you sort out life for us, as long as you keep things going, yeah, I'll follow you. Yeah, I'll love you. What is the motivation of our faith? Sometimes we can take a little rain check by looking at our, our prayer life. What does it consist of? Is it requests nonstop? Maybe, yes, occasionally remembering to thank him and praise him. But overall, do we come to God as if he's our celestial fixer, the one who's supposed to sort things out? I think it's really helpful that Chris took us through the Lord's Prayer this morning because that gives us such a balanced approach. I think, sadly, as Christians, we so easily fall into the trap of treating God as a means to an end, not as the one we're worshipping and obeying and seeking him rather than what he can do for us. I'm sure you're all experiencing the same thing, but these days in lockdown, with everyone at home, I get a lot more knocks on the door of my office. And it's usually with a, with a quite clear agenda in mind. Often it's, Dad, unblock my phone, I've done my homework, or something like that, or help me print this. It's rarely, Dad, I just feel like hanging out with you. It does happen occasionally, I'm glad to say. But I have to think of my own prayer life. When was the last time I just come to sit in his presence with no other agenda than to be with him? Even preparing for this, Am I coming to him to be with him or because I want God to do something through this message? I think we can be very easily like this crowd seeking signs and not Jesus because we've forgotten that signs are meant to point us to Jesus, not distract us from Jesus. So let's not be like the crowd. But on the other hand, let's very much be like this royal official. Let us bring our need to Jesus. It's important to say it's not wrong to come to Jesus with our need. That was part of the Lord's Prayer we've just read. And that's what brought this official to Jesus, this desperate father. And we're reminded, Hebrews 4.16, he always has grace and mercy for us in our time of need. And it's not that God no longer will do miraculous signs. It's not that they're wrong. Many times he does answer prayer graciously. I'm pretty sure I shared this at some point in uh, when we recently moved to Gloucester, about how when I, when I was working with ambassadors in Spain, I took a mission trip, organized a trip there to, to Morocco. And 
without realizing it, I obviously ate something very dodgy on the last day. And as I came back to Spain, I started feeling worse and worse. And to cut a very long story short, after several weeks of continual fever, not being able to eat, trips to the hospital, and not really knowing what was going on, Natasha was so desperate. At, some, at one point, I think she thought I was going to die, and she didn't want to be lumped with three small boys. So she said, I'm going to call the pastor. And so she prayed, and she called our pastor and said, could you just come and pray for, for Graham? And it, it just so happened that he was driving down our street at that very moment. And so he came in and being a very good Spanish pastor, he had a small bottle of olive oil with him and he anointed me with the oil and prayed. And right at that point, I felt the fever go. Now, I still had to finally get the right diagnosis and it ended up that I had hepatitis A and typhoid fever together to boot. So it did take quite a while to recover. But at that moment, God graciously responded to our need and brought a measure of healing. And that was a little sign for us, or a major sign, of God's care. And it deepened our trust in him. That sign pointed us to Jesus. And it's wonderful when God does amazing signs, as long as we respond by seeking him and not the signs themselves. Sadly, so often we go after the sign and not the Savior. Remember, signs are meant to point us to Jesus, not distract us from Jesus. And I think there's also comfort for us here in what this sign has shown us, because many times we have desperate needs and there is no miraculous solution. There is no healing for our loved ones sometimes. And yet we know this, that true life, eternal life is in the sun. And so difficult and hard as it is, we can rest in the fact that in him one day we will enjoy eternal life together far more amazing and greater than anything we experience now. So although we have no easy or simple answers why Jesus doesn't always speak life into desperate situations, we can trust and believe that life is in him, and one day we'll share that with him to its fullest extent. Now we can also, as we close, think about being like the royal official and believe and take Jesus at his word. At various points through John's gospel, people are confronted by who Jesus is, and they have to take a simple step of obedience to show their faith. And very often those steps of obedience happen before there's any certainty. You know, back in chapter two, the servants had to fill those jugs with water, not knowing what would happen. Here, the royal official, he simply has to take Jesus at his word and leave without any assurance. No mobile phone to check home, say, you know, is our son well? He just had to take that step of obedience and believe Jesus. And that's often what God calls us to, to respond to him in faith and obedience, even when, or especially when, we can't see what he's doing and we don't know what is going on. And at the end of John's gospel, Jesus will commend those who believe without seeing. We're called to believe his word and obey it, sign or no sign. And if we're seeking Jesus for who he is and not just what he can do for us, that becomes much more natural as part of our relationship with him. And the amazing thing is we're not left alone to do that. John 14 to 16, as we'll get to at some point, are all about how God's spirit leads us into the truth and empowers us to obey that truth. And not only that, we have 
his body, the church, with us, around us, encouraging us towards that goal, to walk faithfully, even in the darkest moments and the deepest needs. So this brings me to my last point. We can always live in his grace. Jesus will always respond to us in grace when we come to him, just as he did with that royal official and as he did with the Samaritan woman. Yes, we're going to blow it. Yes, we'll seek God for things rather than from himself. Yes, we'll stumble, failing to respond in faith and obedience at times. But he will receive us with grace when we come to him. And who knows, we may experience signs of his glory in different ways. But whether we do or not, he is the real prize. Signs point us to Jesus. They shouldn't distract us from Jesus. And this sign has really shown us something of his glory. We've seen that life is in the Son. There is power in his word and grace in his response to us. I just wanted to finish by reading a few words from Ravi Zacharias, who passed away, as Chris mentioned. So I think this puts it all together. He says this, I came to him, that's Jesus, because I did not know which way to turn. I remained with him because there is no other way I wish to turn. I came to him longing for something I did not have. I remain with him because I have something I will not trade. I came to him as a stranger. I remain with him in the most intimate of friendships. I came to him unsure about the future. I remain with him certain about my destiny.